Our main text today is going to be Luke chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a little bit beyond that. I wanted to tell you a story as I start, but I'm going to tell you now, this story is not going to fit into my sermon until the end. So at first you're going to be like, what did that have to do with anything? It'll come. It's a slow burn. Okay? I had a teacher in high school named Phil DeVille, which I think is a rad name. Phil DeVille. And Phil DeVille was a woodshop teacher. I did not know that Phil DeVille, at the time I did not know, that he was also a marriage and family therapist. So that's kind of a weird connection. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who's a woodshop teacher and marriage and family therapist, but Phil DeVille was. He saw me one day. I was very sad. I had gotten dumped. Sad, sad story. Girlfriend broke up with me. I was like, oh, boo-hoo. And... Uh, he could tell I was not good, so he, he said, what's going on, man? Held me after class, and, and I told him. And so he said, I want you to do something for me. He gave me a piece of paper and a pencil. He said, I want you to write down your dream woman, like everything. And I was like, Katie Risto. Okay, no, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know her at the time. But he said, I want you to write down everything that you would want in a girl. He said, you can write anything you want. He's like, I'm not going to read it. If you want to write, she's pretty. If you want to write, I like, you know, she's got beautiful feet. I don't care. Whatever you write. But, but you write whatever you want on there. And so in my head, I think I've got him figured out. He's, I'm, I think he's going to say, okay, now, don't settle until you find this dream girl. That's what I thought he was going to say. That's not what he said. So I write out this list of all these things about my, my perfect dream girl. And then he says, okay, now I want you to tell me this. What would she want to do with you? <laughs> Ouch, Phil. <laughs> he taught me a lesson that day. I was so worried about finding the right person that I was not at all concerned with becoming the kind of person that she would want to be with. And that did something in my mind from 16 years old where I realized i got to stop searching for this mythical creature who I actually found, weirdly enough. But I started focusing on when I do come across this mythical creature, Am I going to be the kind of person that she would give the time of day to? Okay, I told you, that's not going to come till later. Slow burn. Last week we talked about Mary and Joseph having to travel for the census, not having a place to stay. We talked about the actual birth of Christ, the humble way in which he came to earth, and the shepherds, these average guys who get to be a part of the divine worship service where all of the armies of heaven cry out in praise to this baby Jesus. And we talked about the contrast of two kingdoms. You have Augustus, who is claiming to be the Son of God and building a kingdom all around himself and his, his uh, political power. But then you have this child who comes in the most humble of beginnings and who actually is the Son of God, and these two kingdoms begin to run into each other pretty quickly. We finish with the shepherds leaving 
after they've witnessed this amazing worship service, and they are glorifying God for everything that they have been blessed to hear and to see. And we're going to continue now, read just one verse right now. Luke chapter 2, verse 21, jumps to eight days old for Jesus. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. As many of you probably know, when a Jewish boy turns eight days old, it was a very important day for their family. It was the day that they would be circumcised and have their naming ceremony. The circumcision element goes all the way back to God establishing his covenant with Abraham. This law of circumcision goes way beyond even the law of Moses, all the way back to Abraham. And it is this moment when God connects with Abraham and says, everyone, every male who is a part of your family for generations must do this thing. I want to read to you. If you want to flip to there, you can. But if you don't, it'll be on the screen. All the way back in Genesis chapter 17. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not from your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I bet you didn't think you were going to hear the word circumcision so many times today. We're not even done yet. Here's something fascinating about this to me. and I, I normally try to stay away from being like the pastor who tries to delve into science because I'm not a scientist. But I've read enough that I think this is completely legitimate. It's fascinating. It's why would God specify all the way back then that it is the eighth day when the child was to be circumcised. And not only that, but this is one of the only things that even if the eighth day is on Sabbath, it still has to be done that day. Why is it that important to God? Well, he makes this covenant, and then he says it's got to be the eighth day. And medical science didn't know this until the 20th century. But they now know that the eighth day of a baby boy's life is the exact time where two factors that are necessary for blood clotting are at their highest levels. Vitamin K and prothrombin are both elevated, and therefore it is the best healing day of a baby boy's life that he'll ever have. Pretty amazing. And shocking that God knew that, right? God knows it. He makes a rule. We're all like, that's a weird rule. And then suddenly a couple... 6,000 years later, we're like, oh, God knew what he was talking about the whole time. Pretty interesting. This act of circumcision 
is the physical representation of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It is the shedding of blood and flesh to show that we are even more devoted to God than we are to our own bodies. And I know this one sounds pretty weird for us in our context, but there is a connection you could, you could make between the idea of circumcision and the idea of your wedding ring. Right? This is a physical reminder of a covenant that I have made with Katie, that I carry with me. Circumcision is the same thing for men who are in covenant with God, and they carry with them, and you can't just take it off, this physical reminder of that for the rest of their lives. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> this was required for all Jewish males. And so when Jesus is born, on the eighth day, he's circumcised to fulfill this covenant that God has made with Abraham. On the same day, Joseph and Mary officially named their baby boy. They had already named him, but this is like the official ceremony. They name him Jesus, which we've talked about. Literally means God is salvation or Savior. So again, there's no question here about Jesus. When he's born, people aren't saying like, well, don't tell anyone. Oh, no. How about we call him salvation? How about we make that his name in case anyone's confused about why he's here? So right there from eight days old, it's clear that this child is utterly and completely devoted to God. He's been circumcised. He's been named. Everything about his life is devotion to the Father. And then there's two more stories in Luke chapter 2 that I just love that that kind of point to this as well. From, From outside of him physically... We're going to read two stories today of people who happened to be there that day. So, a few weeks later, when Jesus is 40 days old, it was time for Mary and her firstborn son to go to the temple in Jerusalem for the post-birth purification process. We're going to pick that up in Luke chapter 1, verse 22. And when it came time for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, pause that story. This is interesting. You don't have to flip all the way back to Leviticus, but I want you to show you. I want to show you what they're talking about here when he talks about bringing these birds. Leviticus chapter 12, all the way back, says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent a meeting, a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove, 
for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Listen. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So, all that tells us something about Jesus' family. We find Joseph and Mary in the temple doing exactly what they are commanded by the law to do. They're undergoing this purification process. But when they come, they can't even afford a lamb to bring as a sacrifice to God. This shows us Jesus' family was very, very poor. All that they can afford to bring to the Lord is a couple of birds. And they bring this sacrifice. And also, I find this really interesting. And maybe if you're a theology Bible nerd like me, you're going to find this interesting too. But it's interesting to me that Mary cannot bring the sacrificial lamb with her to the sacrifice. But Mary is bringing a sacrificial lamb lamb to her sacrifice she's bringing the sacrificial lamb they don't need to bring the furry lamb the fuzzy lamb because they are bringing the one that john calls the lamb of god to the temple who will become the eventual sacrifice for all because mary had a little lamb who would take away our sins and make us white as snow. Right? I just think that's fascinating. So back to the story of these these two other people who were involved in this. Back to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. We're going to meet an old guy named Simeon. I really like Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I really like this old guy, Simeon. If you guys can throw up that next picture. These, these are a couple pictures from Rembrandt of uh, his idea of Simeon, and then we're going to get to Anna in a second, or Hannah, depending on what version you're reading. That's Hannah up there with her hands up. Simeon, this old guy. We don't know if 
The woman in that picture on the left is supposed to be Anna or if it's supposed to be Mary. Interestingly, that was Rembrandt's very last picture that he painted, and it was unfinished. And they actually think that somebody else added the female character after his death, so we don't even know who that's supposed to represent. But just an interesting, the famous you know, Dutch painter. These were things that he loved to paint. This story where you see Simeon just holding Jesus. I love this story, and I don't know exactly why, other than I was raised by old people. My grandparents raised me, and I saw the joy that they would find in being my grandparents and raising me. And then when I had children and getting to be a part of that, I just remember seeing the joy that they would have in being a part of this. And so I can imagine Simeon almost as uh, my grandfather, just rejoicing in what he's seeing. And, and he starts to think about Simeon. And if you look in the history, like Simeon may very well have been a young man when the Roman general Pompey came and conquered Jerusalem and brought them under Rome's thumb around the year 63 BC. <coughs> he also bore witness when Rome placed Herod the Great and called him <coughs> the king of the Jews, even though he himself was a foreign invader. Simeon has watched for decades as Israel and God's people have been conquered and mistreated. <clears throat> but throughout all of that, Luke tells us that Simeon has remained righteous and devout. And that the longing of his heart, the thing that he is waiting for, is the consolation of Israel. I mean, he's waiting for someone to come and bring consoling love to the people of Israel in all of its suffering. Now, I wonder what Simeon thought he was waiting for, because we've read a lot of stories about the people that thought the Messiah would come and destroy Rome and put Israel back into power. We don't know exactly what he thought, but we do know this. Luke tells us that Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon, you will see the Christ. And so on that one day, Simeon, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, comes to the temple. And it just so happens to be the same day that Jesus and Mary and their family are there for this process. And Simeon sees the baby Jesus. And I like to imagine that Simeon maybe walks up and just says, may I hold your baby for a minute? And then... Mary does what all moms do when weird old guys say, can I hold your baby? Like, huh, what? Okay. Or maybe, <clears throat> maybe Simeon is just overcome with the emotion and he just sweeps up baby Jesus into his arms. <clears throat> and then he speaks this amazing blessing. Lord, now you're, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. <clears throat> Simeon basically says, I can die a happy man now. 
because I have seen God's salvation for the world. And notice, when Simeon sees Jesus, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation is not something you do. Salvation is someone that you know. He sees Jesus and he says, I have seen salvation. Salvation is knowing Christ, period, full stop. Simeon understands this. And I think Simeon realizes that he has this immeasurable blessing of holding the Messiah in his own arms. And it's crazy if you think about some of the words that Simeon says, because notice that Simeon is a Jewish man in a Jewish temple holding a Jewish baby who is there to fulfill their Jewish rituals. He's praising the God of the Jewish people, and then he speaks these next words, that God has prepared salvation in the presence of all people. That this baby is a light to the Gentiles, which is all non-Jewish people. And he is also the glory of God for Israel. (coughs) Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, understands this Messiah is not only here to bring consolation to Israel, he is here to bring consolation to the entire world to repair what has been broken from the beginning of sin. This story ends with Simeon speaking to Joseph and Mary, and and they're just blown away by the things Simeon has to say, and then he blesses them. But he finishes by telling Mary some very difficult things to hear. He basically says, this child is going to be incredibly divisive for people. Some will rise and some will fall. But he also says that her very own soul will be pierced because of this son, which is obviously a foreshadowing of the cross. So even in this great joy that she gets to be a part of, she also hears these words from this man filled with the Holy Spirit, there's going to be struggle in the midst of all of this. And if all that isn't enough for one trip to the temple, we read another short story about an older woman who sees Jesus that day. Read with me Luke chapter 2, verse 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, or Hannah, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was, here's this term again, advanced in years. After having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So now we have this woman, Anna. We can conservatively guess that she has been a widow for 60 years of her life. She got married probably very young, probably 20 at, at the latest. 
She was married for seven years before her husband passed away. And now she's lived until she's 84. And actually, you can read this in a different translation. It actually might say that she's been a widow for 84 years. And so now she's 106. Either way, this woman has been a widow for longer than many people live their entire lives. And she has devoted all of that time to worshiping God, to fasting, and to praying. This is a woman who is devout and dedicated to God. And she too, like Simeon, upon seeing Jesus, knows exactly who he really is. And Luke tells us that she begins to give thanks to God and she starts to speak of Jesus to everyone who was waiting for the Messiah to come. I was thinking about this week. You could make the argument that old Anna is the first Christian evangelist. Because baby Jesus is 40 days old and she's already going around and being like, the Messiah has come, the Messiah has come. She's telling everybody. Because she finds this amazing joy. Because she is so dedicated to God and the things of God that when she sees Jesus, she knows exactly who he is. These are a couple amazing stories about older folks who have devoted their lives to God. Simeon, a man who is called righteous and devout a man who longs for the coming of the Lord, a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and Anna, a woman who lost her husband at a painfully young age, but instead of living her entire life in bitterness, she has devoted herself to worshiping and fasting and praying. It says she does so night and day. Two people that have sought the Lord for decades upon decades through good times and painful times watching Israel fall to her enemies, losing a spouse, living lives of difficulty and pain, and yet in all of it, they proceed and they give thanks and they give praise to God. And God allows them at the end of their lives to be a part of this incredible blessing. They get to see the salvation of God with their eyes. They get to witness God changing everything, they get to rejoice in the knowledge that the Savior had finally come and that God was still working and had not abandoned them. What might be said of us if each of us here today are able to live long, full lives to where we're the old guy or the old lady who hangs out in church all the time and it's a little weird. We get to live those kinds of lives. What would be said of how we used those years? Could the author of that story say that we were righteous and devout? Could the author say that We devoted our things to worship and fasting and prayer and things of the Lord. And these are not guilt trip questions. I'm talking to me. What would be said if I am able to live a long, full life? And then somebody says, this is is who he was. I think it would be so cool to be one of these people in the Bible 
who are just mentioned like one time. They're not major characters. Like I just, I look so forward. I hope I get to meet Simeon in heaven someday. I just want to be like, I like you, Simeon. You're that guy. To be one of these characters who who's just barely mentioned, but all that's really mentioned is that they were pursuing God with their lives and they rejoiced when they saw the Messiah. These two, Simeon Anna and Anna, have powerful endings of their stories. Now most of you today, even if you're not young adults, are nowhere near the end of your story. But I want you to think about if you do get to that point and you live a long, full life, what do you want to be remembered for? And maybe even take this challenge, and I would love to read this if you do it. I challenge you, sit down and write your own eulogy. Not the eulogy that you would write about you right now, but the eulogy that you hope would be written by somebody else about you at the end of your life. What would it say? What would you be so happy if somebody said about you at the end of your life? Now here's the thing. If you do this, don't then go hand that out to people and say, this is what I want you to say. That's cheating. Don't do that. Instead, do what Phil DeVille told me to do. Start devoting your life to being the person that that eulogy would be written about. Start becoming the kind of person that those words would be spoken of. Do you want to be remembered as someone who devoted themselves to being devout to God? Then become that person. Do you want to be remembered as a devoted and loving spouse or parents or grandparents? Then devote yourself to your families. And that list can go on and on. How would you want people to remember you? If you ask that question, then it's very simple. Start being that person. Phil DeVille had more impact on my life than he knows, and I, I just I hadn't thought about Phil in ten plus years because this was twenty five years ago. I just looked him up on Facebook yesterday. He just passed away a couple years ago, but I started looking, and, and there were happy birthday comments from his daughter even after he was gone saying thank you for being an amazing daddy thank you for raising me right you know, and, and you could see these little moments of people still remembering who he was and I think from what I read he was the man who he decided he was going to be he decided how he wanted to be remembered how he wanted to be interacting with the people in his life. He decided he wanted to be the kind of woodshop teacher that would grab a punk 16-year-old kid and have a conversation about relationships and marriage. That's not normal. Start to become the person 
that you want to be remembered for being. Look at these stories of people like Simeon and Anna who devoted their lives to God. And then God gives them amazing blessing at the end of their lives that they get to be a part of something beautiful. And then just realize that God can do that for you. Devote yourself to the Lord and you will see amazing things happen in this world. You will see lives change. You will see people be saved from the brink of sin and destruction. It is an amazing thing and it will not always be easy. You look at these lives of these two people. They have endured pain and struggle and agony and yet still at the end of their life they are rejoicing in their Savior. What an amazing picture for us as we so often just get caught in the woe-is-me's of life. If we can instead look and say, I have seen the salvation of God.